And here's the thing about intuition, right? When's the last time intuition said, go for broke, right? Most of the time it's a cautionary deal. Your technique is your protection. This is Tom Carter and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned into another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche world. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by 10 Barrel Brewing, Drink Beer Outside, and Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Hope you're having a great day out there. I want to start out this episode by mentioning the ongoing fundraising drive that the American Avalanche Association has going on right now. There, of course, has been an anonymous donor that's generously um, volunteered to match every donation to the A3 throughout the rest of the 2020 year. So there's just another month to go here, and the A3 is about halfway to their their goal of raising $10,000. So let's put our money where our mouth is and help them get there. You can go to www.americanavalancheassociation.org and click on the donate button to do your part. Last week, one of our Canadian correspondents, Dominic Baker, sat down with Avalanche Canada to talk a little bit about what they have going on this season. Um, And so I wanted to include that in this intro as well. So here we go with an update from Avalanche Canada. All right. Grant Helgeson, Avalanche Canada, welcome back to the Avalanche Hour podcast. We had you on uh, this time last year, and uh, good to have you back, buddy. Psyched to be here, Dom. Thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. So we're uh, we're doing a little preseason update here from Avalanche Canada with uh, some of the news that uh, you guys have going on. Um, and just to timestamp this, it's the 26th of November, 2021, and uh, your public avalanche forecast went live yesterday, I believe. Is that right? Forecasts are live for record-breaking 16 regions. It's kind of mind-blowing the amount of coverage that we have this year, the amount of places that we're serving. Um, but we're pretty psyched. It's been a real big year of growth. Can you talk a little bit about that growth? Because I understand you guys hired a whole bunch of new folks and you've got some new field teams and that sort of thing. Yeah, there's a ton happening. Um, as some folks may have heard, we actually received a $10 million grant for the BC government in May, which really has stabilized our existing programs and allowed us to expand into a lot of underserved areas in BC. Um, so now we have a t- we have field team on Vancouver Island. So we've got three folks out there on the island. Um, some listeners may know there's been uh, the Vancouver Island Avalanche Center Society has been running programs out there for 15 years. But this really helps us to take it to the next level, build in daily forecasts. Um, so we're super excited about that. Up in Smithers, we now have a Northwest field team. So another three folks based out of there for the Northwest inland, and they'll be stripping a bit of the Northwest coast as well. Um, 
And that's exciting too, because that Northwest inland in particular is a really difficult area to forecast for. It's much drier than you might think when you think about Northwestern BC, uh, but it's quite nuanced and it's a very complex area. So we're psyched on that. And of course we have the North Rockies field team based in Prince George, uh, um, the South Rockies field team down in the greater Fernie area. And then outside of BC, we're actually into Newfoundland is now as well. That's a whole other ball of wax. That's awesome. I was uh, seeing some of the posts that the Newfoundland field team put out towards the end of last year. And uh, man, that's some windy looking mountains out there. It's uh, really rugged looking, pretty neat terrain. Yeah, you know, I haven't been yet myself, but it sounds awesome. And it also just sounds like that place gets lashed by weather. So yeah, that's uh, exciting to start building more of a program out there as well. And you were mentioning um, before we got on the air here that you've got uh, youth programs really rocking and rolling this year as well. I was wondering if you wanted to touch on that yeah you know it's it's wild i guess it's totally booked up the season now but we're impacting thousands of young people throughout western canada um every year now so we have in-school programs that have really been picked up by school districts across canada and we have we have designated avalanche educators educators that go into the classrooms um, work with these kids teach them about the basic kind of avalanche transceiver probe rescue and the idea is really born, but it's, it comes from the Know Before You Go program that started up in the States uh, by a guy named Craig Gordon many, many years ago. And Craig really identified that kids who grew up on the ocean uh, are typically exposed to some kind of ocean training very early. So they get that education so they can like, know what a riptide is, you know, be able to identify different features in the ocean that are not obvious. And there was a tragic accident that happened around Christmas. Gosh, it must have been 15 or 20 years ago in Utah now. Uh, but actually, it killed a lot of uh, school-age kids who were out building a backcountry jump. And that was Craig's real impetus for getting the Know Before You Go program out there. And then we've latched onto that in a big way. So we, we partnered with those guys at the Utah Avalanche Center to um, produce new videos. And then just have this, this great curriculum that gets Avalanche educators into the schools. It's, it's super cool. Oh, that's awesome. That's totally how it should be. I mean, as you say, these kids are exposed to it at a young age. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we're into almost a third generation of backcountry skiers at this point. So uh, it's great to arm these kids with some information. Totally. It just plants the seed. Um, but that's something that you can do. Like, I don't think I really realized that was something that was possible until I was 16 or 17. You know, that you could go backcountry skiing. Like, yeah. So I think it's really cool that 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 program exists. And you guys are doing weekly webinars again this year. I was loving that last year. Can you talk a little bit? Yeah, about that? yeah. Yeah, it's so fun. Uh, we actually just did one on Wednesday night, Brad Christie, one of our new forecasters and I. And we have webinars that are going to be going for the next few months. And it kind of range from mild to wild, like from um, just like no experience required, just come on board and we'll talk about some real basic stuff. And then I'm sure we'll get into some like more fireside chats that will delve into some uh, more in-depth complex topics um i'll be hosting a number of those along the same scale so you can you want to get into that with me like please come by uh get on the website you'll see all the details that are available there but it's amazing we had 200 people on the webinar on wednesday night and that would be like one of our best nights this season if we were out there actually traveling and giving these things in person um so as much as I do miss like the traveling roadshow of going around and talking in person. I think we're reaching a lot of people and they're tuned in for that hour. Um, we can have a good time with them, get some information out there and then folks can be in the comfort of their own living room. And it, it seems like it's great. There's a lot of uptake. 
Oh, it's great. It just opens up so many more people for your audience. And this is all information that uh, people are hungry for. I think that you and I know working in the industry that there, you just never know it all when it comes to avalanches. And I think that the general recreational backcountry skiing public realizes that as well. It's one of those, the more, you know, the more you realize you don't know situations. So uh, to have some, you know, interesting webinars where you can hang out for an, an hour and, you know, have a, have a glass of wine and listen to some people talk about snow nerdery. It's fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really cool. So those will be going on all season. That's a, that's a fun event there too. So check it out. Avalanche.ca. Um, doesn't, you don't have to be Canadian to check it out either. It's a lot of Americans listening to this podcast too. So everybody get on there. Uh, and then uh, just anecdotally, do you have a sense of like how AST course providers are doing these days? I know last year, everything was selling out like crazy and, I think that's a trend that was uh, similar in the States as well, where public avalanche education was, you know, booming. Um, have you heard much um, this year about that? Yeah. You know, I'm, I heard a little bit about that program and there's people that work on it in our, our team full time, but it, it still sounds like it's, it's, it can be tough to find an avalanche course because they are filling up really quickly. So it sounds like the demand remains quite high for those courses, which, which is awesome. I think this is a good place for a quick plug too. Um, you know, AST one, that basic two day course, but AST three, right. Excuse me. AST two. Um, that's a wicked course. And we just, we don't have that many people that take it compared to our other courses. Personally, I think that gave me the most, um, benefit of any avalanche course I've ever done. Cause it really got me in the train thinking about making decisions. So I think that one's rad. I also think that um, the MAT course, Managing Avalanche Train, if it's been a while since you've done your last course, that can be a really cool opportunity to get out with someone who's very experienced and kind of refresh that um, image of the train and where's the right place for the right conditions. And then finally, the Companion Rescue course, there's been a number of stories about groups of, of backcountry recreations who have taken that course and then been involved in some kind of complex rescue um, that same year even. And it's just, it saved lives. So I, I, those one day courses you can add on and continue education. I think those are awesome for folks to already taken that basic AST one. So again, just like hanging out with us for the evening or listening to the Avalanche Yard podcast, like keep that learning going to it. There's some cool opportunities there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's worth noting that all professionals do quite a bit of training at the start of every season. And then of course, ongoing training through the season, right? Like I just finished up three weeks of training um, at my workplace. And, uh, you know, that covers everything from avalanche rescue to terrain travel, to map skills, to ropes, this, that, and the other thing, first aid as well. I think for any recreational backcountry skier, it would be well worth, uh, as you say, to taking the companion rescue course, maybe once a year or every couple of years or something like that, or at the very least going out and drilling that with your friends. So I do find those one day courses are excellent, uh, continuing education. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, Avalanche Forecasts are live. All that information is available on our website and all the social channels. And I think that's uh, it's probably a good place to leave it for now as we get ready for the season. Sounds great. Grant, would you mind uh, just one quick plug uh, on the MIN? Just tell us about how important that is to you guys, and then uh, we'll leave it there. I love it. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, the MIN or Mountain Information Network um, is a place where you can tell us what's happening in the backcountry. And you do not need to be a professional. It does not need to be written out in uh, Snow Geek. It can just really be simple. You know, a photo tells us so much. Even a photo of just good riding tells us a lot. Like if I see a photo of you crushing it and it's blower pow and there's snow in the trees, that tells me that that place is probably not very wind affected. 
you can add more, of course. We'd love to hear all of your observations, but it doesn't have to be arduous. Like it can literally be something that's a quick photo or two, a quick one or two sentence paragraph about what you found out there that day um, can go a long ways towards helping us produce better avalanche forecasts. So please submit to the man. We really appreciate it. Very good. Much appreciated, Grant. Thanks for uh, stopping by. Have a safe winter, buddy. Hey, same to you, buds. And one last announcement before we jump into our interview for the day. The Avalanche Hour podcast website is back up and running. It's been down for a couple months for some maintenance, um, but uh, we've streamlined it a little bit and we've added a donate button. I've had some inquiries from some listeners uh, asking how they could help to support the podcast. And the best way to do that is through, of course, word of mouth. And maybe the second best way is through some financial donations. So um, you can find a donate button in the top right corner of the website and donate directly through PayPal that way and help support some of the growth that we're seeing with the podcast these days. So head on over to www.theavalanchehour.com and check out the website. Without further ado, here we go with Tom Carter. Hey Tom, how's it going? Good. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Thanks for welcoming me to your home. It's October 11th here. Got the first snow at at, uh, at lake level here in Tahoe, hey? That's right. Yep. Yeah, it feels like the seasons are changing a little bit. They are definitely changing. It's nice to see the snow on the mountains. What have you been up to? I've been, I had a good summer. There was smoke around, but you could get around it for the most part. Um, spent a lot of time climbing and uh, also doing, I backpack in the High Sierra as much as I can. You know, some trips, yeah. it's always a good release. Cool. Swimming in the lake, I do a lot of stuff in the water as much as I can as well. Summer consists of that pretty much. Well, Tom, introduce yourself to the listener base here and, and talk about your background, maybe how you got into skiing, some some early early days of climbing in Yosemite, kind of your your background and history. So, you know, like most kids whose parents ski, we started skiing. My folks, my folks were um, living in uh, student housing, which was the barracks at UCLA, and uh, they went skiing up at Big Bear, and that was kind of a changer for them. And the, they realized that they wanted to live where they could drive easily to ski. And then they relocated to Fresno, California in the central Valley. And I was on skis when I was five years old and uh, Badger Pass in Yosemite. And uh, we'd stay in the Valley and then drive up to Badger. And um, back then you could buy a 10 run ticket. You know, they'd punch the tickets, you know, and, uh, it was all T-bars, rope toes and stuff. And uh, we just loved skiing. And that's what we would do. And I remember I got in trouble. My mom had to write a letter to the principal telling him that it was more important for them to go skiing with me than for me to be in class on Friday. And uh, so that was, you know, my folks weren't racers, but they really enjoyed it. And that was kind of my real, my outdoor sport was skiing. My mom taught swimming. So I was always a little decoy, you know, in the summer and stuff. But um, <clears throat> I really didn't get into the, mountains per se outside of skiing until i um i went rock climbing when i was um in 1971 i was 19 years old and um 
in Yosemite. And it was pretty much, I went rock climbing and it changed my life. It changed everything. And it changed it in a matter of weeks. I quit school, my job, moved to the valley, Yosemite Valley. It was like I did handsprings down the aisle. I was completely struck by the rock and everything about it. It wasn't just, it was like an introduction to a whole another world, not just movement on the rock and the smell and the location and the and the vistas and the consciousness that you have to have and the partnerships and the language. It was just like Yosemite just folded around me and I ended up spending almost eight solid years in the valley, you know, little excursions in and out. Um, but what that also did is that you're leaving um, school and whatnot, you know, trying to go to school, trying to go to the first couple of years of college, is um, we started ski touring just on wooden cross-country skis. A friend of mine had a little shop, and he says, you're buying these. I think skis were like 60 bucks or something, some trope and turlets with schnob bindings and little teeny, we called them, you know, they, were, they had less rigidity than a Tiva. The boots, shoes really, not even boots. But we we would start touring around up at Glacier Point. Um, ended up touring up into Tuolumne. A friend of ours was the first winter ranger there, and it was that year, so that had to be like 70, winter of 72. And spent a month up there. I was trying to go to school again. I remember quitting school by phone from the phone booth. You know, you're like laying on the snowbank, going, reaching down, dialing the numbers, going like, you guys, I'm not going to make it. And knowing it was the right thing to do. And skiing really was just, I mean, there it is, it's gliding. And um, so from that point, climbing, a little different world than it is today because really not very many people climbed in the winter. You could go down to Joshua Tree, but it was kind of a novelty to do that. Spent a couple of weeks down there. So instead we skied. And so, um, yeah, um, you know, there's no track setting nothing at that point people skied in tracks for if there was a race they would actually ski the tracks in you know and uh the yosemite had a yosemite mountaineering school so they had the, they had some really good skiers there and whatnot and but we started skiing over to the east side to go do the shoveling jobs after the storms mm. so we'd ski across and then we'd work for two or three weeks because you got better paid to do the high roof work that they didn't want to put everybody else on and um and we'd ski back. And I mean, it makes you realize how ignorant we were because I don't think we even saw fractional lines. Now, there's, it's like there's fractional lines somewhere out there, right? But anyway, that was falling in love with the backcountry and moving through it in the winter was just something we did every winter. I mean, every, every day we could really. And, um, you know, I mean, everyone thinks of Yosemite as the valley, but, you know, you just get up on the rim and it goes as far as you want. And, um, I think one of the things that climbing gave us for skiers, um, is first of all, we had, you had teammates, you had people that you really, I mean, what climbing does, I mean, it's like, it's a bond, it's a contract, you know, you're looking out for one another. And because of that, you develop a really succinct language, like short and sweet things that need to be said, get said at the right time. And you are taking care of each other. And I think that really kind of that and also just everything that climbing does in regards to, I have to go back here for a moment. Like the era we were really influenced in Yosemite by the golden era of Yosemite climbing. And, and those guys were really had been influenced by kind of the beat generation 
Kerouac, a lot of different philosophies and stuff. But what they were really embracing was really kind of like a call back to nature, like in the regards to the respecting it, maybe even as Native Americans felt about the land, you know, that, that it would take care of you if you took care of it. And so that respect and that humility, I'm sh- it, it, it really kind of poured over into whatever we were doing. And it really, it, you know, let the rock pull you up was one of the things that you would say. Like, it'll pull you up. You know, it's not about strength. It's not about power. Of course, strength and power can be in play, but it's more like really being in the now, being relaxed enough to really observe enough to, to style it. Would you say you were kind of part of the second generation, second wave of climbers in the valley and, and, and who were some of the mentors that you met there, kind of maybe from the first wave? Well, you would meet, I mean, Chuck Pratt, the quintessential Yosemite climber and a person that, you know, would just say, well, your technique is your protection. You know, if there's nothing like the rock, don't leave it, you know, let it teach you whatever it can. You know, and then, but then you would see the icons. You would, I mean, Pratt, of course, was, but you would see Royal and T.M. Herbert, who was always jovial and really welcoming, you know. But um, to say it was a second generation is really difficult because really, I mean, David Brower, Raffi Bidet, and Dick Leonard, all those guys, they were, they were climbing in that era in the 30s as well. So, you know, it's multiple steps to get to where we were. But we kind of, it, it was the handoff from the 60s to the 70s. And then those guys kind of faded out. But, you know, we were mentored for sure. My little story about mentoring is like, we're climbing on a rope. We took off a boat. That's pretty much a no-no. And we're like, there's snow on the ground and we're up 60 feet at some simple little, and we hear crunch, crunch, crunch. And we look down and we go like, oh, those are the real deal, guys. And they look up at us and they go like, come down immediately. And we go like, okay. And down we come, and they look at our rope, and they look at us, and they go, tomorrow at 10, be here. And they showed us around. They just said, this is the techniques. These are the calls. This is how you deal with the rope. This is what a real belay is. It's a contract. Don't let go of that break hand. And they told us. And then they gave us, basically, they go, write this down. And they gave us a list. And like two weeks later, they'd go, how is that list going? And And they'd say, well, was that easy? And we go, oh, yeah, that was easy. They go, no, it isn't. Go and style it. And so they really passed. I mean, that was easy to do. That mentorship was built into the community in a sense it, because it was a small community. I still know those people. One was the head of the Yosemite Mountaineers, called Dave Burcheff. Another was Bob Ashworth. I mean, those guys are still around. I mean, they would be the guys that would say like, hey, be careful over there. You know, there's a lot of rock above you when you're standing under that wall. You know I mean? And they, so they cared and that, and I, when, you know, we were talking about like, where do you get your direction when you're, when you're learning about snow and whatnot? And I think it's much more difficult in some ways. There's other avenues, but there's nothing like eye contact, you know, and, and hand to hand kind of making things happen. I mean, looking at somebody's body English and watching them really kind of ponder and kind of trying to come up with an answer that'll work for you or be understandable by you. You know, that's mentorship is really difficult to, 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 to delve out and to also receive, you know, and, and it takes time and it takes exposure to those people and to the terrain over and over. I think, I mean, I'm big on that. I, I don't mind being a small fish in a 
small pond at all. You know, I like knowing my way around. There's something happening every, different every day in the terrain you ski in, right? Right. To me, there is. Sure. So, so you got a lot of experience just learning how to move in the mountains in the valley, I'm sure, and, and then uh, started making your way over to the eastern Sierra for the winters. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and then did you start spending more time over in Mammoth? Yeah, I had a little place in Tom's place, Mammoth first, because we could all like bunk together and do do our thing. You know, it was like a flop house. Um, we were there um, two or three of the handful of the best winners of that of the twentieth century. Um, eighty two, eighty three, eighty one was a really good winner as well. And we just thought it would be like that forever, like the Swiss Bank. You know that it would just bury the terrain. And and I mean, I've skied there and been there ever since, and I've never seen a winter like that since. I really haven't, right? I mean, it just depends. You can have the same amount of snowfall. Everything looks the same on on the charts, but how the wind blows, when it came in, what it sat on, right? All that stuff makes a difference, you know, how how your spring will come on. But we had corn. We just thought it would be like that forever. You can ski corn for months, mm -hmm. you know, but those were anomalies, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, but we didn't know it then. We were just going, okay. This is it. We're a guide forever on the snow, you know, and the glaciers were actually growing back then, even in California, right? But, um, you know, but it's, you know, just like kind of trying to parallel what, what's the rock do to you. I mean, you know, you learn how to get to the base of the rock. You learn how to kind of look at the terrain and you look at, you know, kind of what what are the features? What's the what are descriptive words to, to express what you're looking at, you know? And so you learn the vernacular. And back then you could see a set of tracks on a, on a blank snowfield with no other tracks on it. You go, oh, look, that's Marco Milano put those down this morning because he had a style. You could actually recognize like a signature. Sure. That's how few people were really doing it, you know? So we were all on Telemark gear at that point. You know, I'd ski on Alpine gear until I was 18. And then I really, I put on a couple... I put out alpine skis for some shoots really late in the season for just some stuff that we thought we needed a bigger hammer for. But, um, you know, we did the wrong things there too. I mean, we got on some, some snow that was pretty dang hot, you know, and, um, and sidestep some problems periodically, you know, but, um, again, I think what really saved us in the long run in the early times, like kind of learning about snow and, terrain was is that we didn't have the gear to get us there during the storms we're skiing on skinny wooden skis not wooden forever but you know we got boots that don't have much torsional rigidity Gore-Tex didn't even come out till like 78 and 9 um so we're skiing in wool you know and whatever do a fold underwear and you know um Pendleton shirts and knickers and <laughs> So, so, I mean, like ski mountaineering, actual ski mountaineering was, was pretty much reserved for springtime, right? I mean, like you, you weren't getting into big objectives until way later in the winter, right? You know, people, Orland Bartholomew skied the crest of the Sierra back in, is, was it um, 27, 28, in the midwinter. So th people had done it. Doug Robinson and Peanuts McCoy had done the Muir Trail, and they'd done um, that. You know, but it wasn't like the the mountains were not full of people by any stretch during the winter months. It was more like spring. And spring was awesome because you got good temperatures. You got um, solid conditions for the most part. Water everywhere. Longer you days. Can, longer days. You can camp on rock. I mean, it, it was, 
you know, it, it, that was kind of the, the prime time. And everyone would go at Christmas, at, excuse me, everyone would go at Easter. Easter's transitional. Yeah. You know, I mean, the skiing really comes on when people are, for, are already involved they're in other sports. And so, again, that kind of winnows. It's a winnowing process. But really, the high Sierra above Timberline comes on May. You know, and people would go like you're hiking down, and they would go like, "Where's with skis on?" They're going, "Where's the snow?" I go, "Look at this river; it's pouring out of the mountains. There's snow everywhere up there, right?" Yeah. Tom, when did you start ski guiding? I started ski guiding in 1980. I'd done some ski instruction, but that's not really guiding. It can feel like that sometimes, but um, I started working for a guy named Dave Beck, Sierra Ski Touring. And Dave Beck was an early squaw patroller back in the 60s. He had been hired by the Walt Disney Corporation to map out the Mineral King development that was going to have the, any, anyone, and it got ended up getting nixed with a lot of work through the Sierra Club and some other environmental um, conscious institutes. Um, and he had a lot of experience and he, um, we skied at Trap Family Lodge in Vermont. And so we had some, he had some instructional skills and, um, he hired us at Mammoth and we uh, started work for him. And he had pioneered the high route in the Sierra with Nick Hartzell, someone else. I can't remember the name. Sorry about that. But, um, so we started being his Sherpas really. And, um, and then, you know, jumping in always when there was anything to do with, you know, and he, he he knew avalanches, and he started putting together avalanche schools at Mammoth and bringing in guys like La Chapelle, Rod Newcomb, Norm Wilson, and uh, and those guys would, and mainly it was for, um, the ski patrols would do the kind of in-house stuff, but there would be ski patrol, like supervisors and stuff that would attend the Beck, Sierra Ski Touring was Dave Beck's operation, and he would put together these, you know, they'd be five-day courses, so we'd go out and dig the pits, prep the pits for these guys, and then they'd go in with their cards and start showing people layers and how to identify grain types and things like that. So we kind of got to see these guys work with the snow, and, and we saw their lectures year after year. You know what happened? At least once or twice a year, there'd be a there'd be a big, what would be considered now maybe, now the terms have even changed. Instead of a level three, it might be a pro one. But um, regardless, it was for professionals. And then he would do numerous level ones, um, you know, where there'd be a weekend course back then, not a three-day, but a two-day course. And we'd go up into the terrain and, you know, just start looking at terrain. And, you know, what do you think about that? What are the slope angles? Which way does that face? How how much heat does that get? You know, what's the cold part of that mountain, right? What kind of layers do you think you'd find in that snow? What's happened in the last month and a half here, you know, how would you find out if you didn't live here? You know, that you're trying to get people to just like, really people know more than they think they know about snow. It's like people go like, Oh, bird watching. That must be hard. I don't know anything about birds. Yes, you do. What's that? That's a Robin. Well, how about that? Well, that's a blue Jay. See, you know more than you think. What do they look like in the air? In one tenth of a second, you could identify that. So you just need to be sensitive to it and kind of focus down on it. That takes a while. And, um, you know, it's also a long-term thing. It's not like sleeping on the tape recorder, right? And going like, oh yeah, layering, facets, rounds. Um, but back then, really, I think we were just starting to use the compression test. We Shovel shears were kind of the standard, you know, depending on who, where that instructor came from. Jackson, Newcomb, and those guys were doing shovel shears. Colder packs were kind of a little easier to pull that snow out and, and make it 
fail and um and then the compression tests tests started showing up and um and then we were doing the high country routes and we didn't really do stuff in the winter but we did camps in the winter so we'd ski up set up camps so we'd be there'd be midwinter camps snow survival stuff like that dig some snow caves but then while we were we when we weren't guiding we were skiing off the sherwins and wherever we could you know get and again on telemark stuff um and sort of over those years, you, you put together a pretty big objective, right? The the red line traverse. Yeah, that was fun. It would be like if you were sailing along a coast, back and forth along the same coast. And every time you went, you would like duck into a little cove and go, what's this like? So we'd be up on these high routes. And, uh, you know, like let's say, you know, so you're skiing from basically – you know, the east side to Visalia. You don't go down to the Central Valley. But anyway, so you're just looking up where you aren't. And that, I mean, what Dave did was awesome about Dave Beck is that he understood that the best skiing was not down on the Jarmir Trail in the woods where everything drops snow and is hotter than heck and in the spring. So we'd be up in the Tyndall Basin at these high camps that like, you know, we'd hump, we'd hump the food and that's we were the Sherpas, you know, and there'd be... um we'd set up these camps for five days or so. And then we'd go down like these little, like these base camps. So you'd you'd hike, you'd hike and ski in, spend five days doing like these little spokes off the wheel, going and looking around and then you'd back, come back to the car. So you didn't have to do a shuttle, but you'd be up there looking and you'd go like, Oh man, that's a pass. What's around that corner, you know? And so we started just poking around and we would start to see these lines that would connect, especially on these big ears, you know? And, um, you know, there's, they're, they're at 12, 13,000 feet plus in places. You know, it didn't all go, but um, you started going like, I bet we could connect that. And that's what turned into the red line. And um, the red line was, it wasn't really a statement. It was just really trying to just be as free as you could up high, which was really enhanced by the fact that you were there in the spring, in terrain you knew, connecting pieces of terrain that you also recognized in, in the spring, I mean, our packs are 25 pounds. I mean, we just said, you can't go. This is it. Of course, then you threw a camera on top of it. But so we were skiing in Clutterworks packs, the old Dana design stuff. I mean, they were the best. I mean, they were glued to your back. We didn't really take food. We called it fuel. We just like made these horrible meals. We just would like, okay, we're going to fuel now. You know, no, none of it was cuisine. It was just, anyway, but it let you really almost... It was like a skate park almost on these little light skis. You could skate, you could pump the terrain. I mean, it's not like you didn't struggle at times and stuff like that, but it was, and we'd been on skis all year, strong as you're ever going to be at altitude. And so you could connect it. And it was, I mean, you cover 15, 20 miles in a day. I mean, you knew when to get up in the morning, when to work the hard services, when you needed the snow to be soft, on what aspect, come around the corner. Yes. You know, that kind of stuff. It didn't happen all the time. We got in some horrible kickboard crust on thin skis. That's always fun. But so that was really our kind of penultimate tour was the red line. But we did a number of different first ascents from Mineral King over and stuff. But it, again, it was just that it was the freedom of moving on light skis. You it's really hard to do that on bigger skis. Mm-hmm. You just, just don't have that. I mean, they have to be really light, you know, and flexible to make that work. At least that's 
my take on it. You you still like skiing on pretty light skis and I do telemark gear. Um, I do, but I'm not. I'm not like a zealot. I mean, we were like we'd light our skis on fire, so we were zealous at one point. But um, <laughs> but it really was a tool that let you. It was a better tool to be in the backcountry. There was no AT gear that could compare. Yeah. I mean, of course, it was a bigger hammer, but like you were gonna lug it. And now things have changed, but the bigger skis have kind of. There's people that did what we do, what we did. 30 years ago on really fabulous gear and they tear it apart. They make us look like a bunch of primitives and we were, but that's unusual. It's kind of more like roadside attractions. Now big gear kind of is inhibitive. I mean, you can rip, but um, you know, it's going to rip you in half if you're going to go 20 miles a day on it for sure. You know I mean? But there's some supermen and women out there for sure. Mm-hmm. But again, what we would see then, avalanche-wise, was we would just see kind of mainly, um, you know, storm events on on corn, right? Um, heat events, really just kind of um, stuff running down on some to some layer that was created during the middle of the winter. I mean, where we really learned about snow, um, we learned about terrain and timing in the spring. What you really learned about snow was in the winter, right? Because you had cold snowpacks couple of winters in Jackson for me and up in Idaho. And, and so one of the, one of the years in 79, I was touring in the rubies in the spring again. And I ran into Joe Royer. I ran into him on the corner <laughs> in Lamoille. He goes, what are you doing? We go, we're skiing. He goes like, I'm going with you tomorrow. And it was a relationship that just uh, really, we hit it off. Um, I think it was like two or three days after I met Joe, I w- watched him and David Moe, who was the founder of Powder Magazine, magazine a guy named Dudley Reed and Rick Barker, skied terminal cancer. We just, wa- we just, we went like, we're not going there. They're going there. We're going to watch them do this, right? So, and I was going to New Zealand that summer and on a trip with Ned Gillette, like a traverse of the Southern Alps in midwinter, New Zealand's midwinter. And um, Joe was going down to help those guys set up some heli operations in Queenstown, Wanaka, and um, <clears throat> in the Ben O house right at Mount Cook with a guy named Gavin Wills. And uh, so we bump into Joe in New Zealand, and he's sleeping on the couch at the guide shack. And we just go, we have this bungalow. We're going to be gone for like a month. Just take over. So Joe took over, and we went into the mountains, and we skied this traverse for like 34 or 5 days. And... Uh, came out and then we toured around and Joe said, what are you doing in the winter? And I go, kind of skiing back and forth and doing a little work. And he goes like, what do you know about snow? And I said, I don't know anything about snow really, you know? And he goes, good place to start. And then he looks at me, kind of cocks his head and goes, because if anybody tells you they know exactly what happened, you just start backing away from them, Tom. And he started kind of farming me out. He kind of would say, Hey, I got an invite for you over there with Mongo and Liam in the models, he says, go over there for a week. Those guys are going to, you know, if they can take you on the hill, they will. And, and so I met Peary, Shorey, and Trover, and um, and uh, Liam, of course. And those guys would take me out on some routes. I mean, you could do that back then. You could, and um, This is uh, Snowbird. For- this is it, Snowbird, yeah, yeah Snowbird, and up, up in Little Cottonwood. And I remember going like, you first, Tom. And I go like, I'm not sure about that. And I remember Mongo just looking at me and go, Good choice. <laughs> you know, so you learn. It's a slow process, right? But those guys would, you start learning the vernacular. You start seeing what they're looking at, why they're looking at. And you see more avalanches because you got a snow, you know, got a cold, shallow snowpack. 
you know, fairly um, untrodden in the early part of the season. So you don't have the compaction. So they're really dealing with a real, like a live snow back in the backcountry. And, and um, in 83, I was in Mammoth, Tom's place actually. And the phone rings and Joe goes, Tom, can you be here tomorrow morning? I go, yeah. <laughs> and uh, drove all night, showed up. And um, that was my first guiding that I'd done there. And then Joe asked me back in 84, I lived in this trailer. And this was one of your questions was like, just something that stands out. And I remember, I mean, it's so different in the Great Basin. It's a desert mountain range. It's a, there's a lot of desert mountain ranges out there. That's where some really good powder is, right? And it may be shallow, but it's really cold. And if you know your way around, and Joe knew his way around, he was setting up the helicopters. He'd been at 77, he set it up, the helicopter operation. But one night I'm in this trailer and I go, I wonder if the stars are out because it's storming. And I, I opened the screen door and I just realized it pushed like a foot of snow off the deck with like no effort. And I look at the lamp that the porch light and I go, oh my God, half the snowflakes are going up. I go, oh, that's light snow. It must be cold out there and coming straight down. And that's a meteorological phenomenon. That's what you can get. When you have snow that you remember, it's typically because something unusual happened. The storm stalled over you. Something slowed that storm down and trapped it in a particular head of a canyon or whatever it is. And if that's going on, don't drive home, right? Just stick around because you're going to see some snow, you know. And, you, and, and at some points, there's too much, right? I mean, people go, oh, there's never too much. I go, oh, yeah, there's too much, <laughs> you know. But um, that's when I really saw champagne powder. Right. I mean, it's four or 3%, whatever it is. You can't get it in the tube to measure it, you know, and um, it pretty much changed my life. I spent 30 seasons out there with Joe. And I mean, Joe is, I mean, I've learned everything there is. I, everything I learned about snow on, on, a, on the intricate level is due to Joe's tutelage and just the time we spent just putting our heads together. Like, why did that do that? Why isn't it over there? Where's that? How thick is that layer? Is that supportable? Where, what do we stay away from, right? How do you stay out from under that but get to snow that you trust? Or, um, you know, how long can we trust that for? What's And, um, you know, Joe would bring in these guys. He, you know, Mongo one year would show up. Trover came up. Peter Lev would, would show up. Um, Chris Stetham came down from Whistler. And those guys, I mean, those outside resources, I mean, those guys would look at your snowpack and, and ask you questions and, they, and you, they would ask you questions that made you ponder. And then they would go out and look at the snow in a way that you, you know, I remember Chris, the first time I ever saw him, he's probing and I will, I go, yeah, that's the shallow snow. He goes, that's what I'm looking for. I'm, I, I'm thinking I'm looking for the snow where it's fat, where there's a big load, right? And, you know, he's going, well, this will this is where things are going to start happening, right? These are the start zones. You need to know what, how much snow is in these early in the season, you know? And um, so Joe, Joe was never someone that didn't listen to outside voices that had different kinds of experience, different angles of looking at stuff. And that's why he was so um, instrumental really in prototyping a bunch of the airy courses in the rubies occurred with Colin Zacharias and, um, Back in the early um, 20s, 2000, 2000s, I should say. Um, Open-minded guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was it like kind of expanding some of the 
heli skiing tenure there and kind of expanding into new runs like you guys were opening stuff you know every every season there i'm sure you always find there's more ski runs than you originally thought you know when you're looking at stuff but and sometimes the you know i mean it, it can be season to season it can be week to week it can be storm to storm what's open what's not you know these days we we call it like what's green what's red you know, it used to be what's yellow. We just took that out because you go like, if you have doubt, why let's just wait and talk about it another day or another storm or next week or, um, but, um, yeah, you know, you would, you would say, God, I don't know. That looks good over there. And, and you'd, and you'd show up and go like, wow, those trees are thick, you know, or it's way bonier than I thought it would be. Or, wow, there's like a piece of snow there. You might not be able to put all the groups in there, but you can take two groups kind of out of sequence. And, and, and now you can use the terrain a little bit more conservatively. Give, give those people that need some more wide open stuff some room, you know, because you put more advanced skiers maybe in some a little bit trickier skiing conditions or a little bit more advanced skiing conditions and stuff. So... But I mean, I never got tired of looking at that terrain, you know, from the snow or from the air. I mean, it's just, um, it's beautiful. And, um, but you know, there were years there when we skied and I can't remember, I'd have to ask Joe, but there were a couple of years where we go, let's, can we ski without explosives? And I can't remember if there was actually something that was going on with the ATF or whatever else. Um, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Agency. Um, but, and we just said, let's just ski what we, we, we feel we trust, right? Um, we called it avalanche-resistant terrain. So if you ski it in this way, you're not putting yourself in the target zone. You know, but most of the time we used explosives, it was really, I mean, we'd throw 15 shots or something. I mean, you throw that on a single route, I mean, or more and most curious, but it was to get indications of what was going on within the snowpack. Are we right? Test your forecast. Exactly. Test your forecast. Are we going to get it to pull on that layer? There's the facets. There's that crust with the grapple on top of it, whatever, right? Wow. That's a big wind roll. That's a six foot fracture line, right? Well, I only expected, you know, couple feet out of that so it gives you but there are protection shots that you would throw periodically as well you know i think one of the biggest things i've learned from joe is like that that never like changed the way that we skied the runs no it doesn't and and you're right i also learned a lot about margins there like online skiing with margins built in you know the first thing that joe ever told me when i asked him for a job is we ski strips of snow here right yep and that's the what fattest snow you can find. Yeah. No online skiing. I mean, one at a time. Yeah. You get to the island of safety. You stop. That person hasn't even. You know, we used to say, "No, you don't adjust your goggles. You don't move your skis. You wait, and your eyes are on that person that's skiing that line, because that's not what you want to have happen when you're skiing it. You, you don't want people looking after you, not like lighting their galois, adjusting their beret." Right? Let's take care of each other. And, and Joe was freaking amazing at that. I mean, he drove that home for us. And people would say, like, why are we doing this? And he'd go, like, you guys, we want to do this forever. Not just today, you know? Yeah, pretty amazing place there. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, some of the early airy courses in the Rubies. Maybe talk a little bit about just avalanche education and in general, kind of the, the evolution that you've seen from those early days into 
maybe what it is now. I know you're not quite as in, involved as you once were, but your take on that. A lot more people these days, right? So we got to take care of each other. A lot more courses going on, people going through the programs. Um, and because of that, it's really um, developed. The curriculum is developed. The presentations developed. The instructor pools are really professionally trained now. But what was going on, just to go back kind of at the beginning, for me at least, La Chapelle, Binks, those guys um, that were doing those courses back then, they were really talking to us about snow events, right? Big storm events. This is what we did. We shot the Hauser. Um, you know, we were digging pits, but it was really, um, it was kind of more of a history of the snow. Not really, it was showing us techniques, not teaching us techniques, really. I got involved with area. I was doing some avalanche courses and it just, you know, here you are mimeographing stuff and taking pictures of your pictures and, and, and trying to create your own s curriculum and, and kind of sequence of, of parts of your day teaching and whatnot. And um, I got a call. I can't remember if it was a call. Anyway, I had some communication with Tom Murphy and Carl Kloss and Jean Paviard down in the um, Crested Butte area. And they said, Tom, we're, we're trying to put together a group of people and we want to talk about building this curriculum, avalanche curriculum for the AMGA. Because what they were finding, these guys were all examiners in, in Canada and in America and John in Switzerland as well for these guide course certifications, right? To get your pin, ski, mountaineering, rock, s snow, etc. And that these people were showing up at these courses, these winter ski mountaineering courses with totally diverse or very, very different takes on on how to evaluate snow and they're going like okay so we want to build a course that, that these guides can take before they come into this mountaineering course so we're all on the same page we're speaking the same language we understand what these tests mean what these results mean just even the terminology was all over the board regionally right and it's colloquial we get that but they wanted to kind of go like no now's the time let's rein it in and the canadians have been doing it and the Canadians basically had a bunch of European guys that got together and, and really kind of got rigid about it, but it worked. And so we were, we were, so we had some of that influence. So I went down there and we started building that curriculum. And what we realized is if we're building a course for guides, what are people doing? Well, they're guiding themselves. You guide your group of friends through the mountains. I mean, you're not the guide. You're, it's kind of like this pack of dogs or cats maybe, but, um, so we said, well, this isn't just for guys. This is for people, everybody. And that's where the area curriculum first really um, kind of was formulated. And um, so what do these people really need to do? And this was really, this is like, this is before there were as many avalanche um, forecasting centers as there are now. Or, or that the avalanche forecasting centers were not nearly as... Um, robust in regards to financials and having observers on every day. It was kind of a weekend deal near metro metropolitan areas. Of course, Salt Lake had theirs. Colorado had, has a system, but really um, it was kind of, kind of hunting, pecking around for information. It wasn't daily bulletins. Um, and if it was, um, it all improved with the more, um, with the overwhelming numbers of people going in the backcountry. It just drove, the expertise of those forecasters. Then people started coming up with different ways to express this to the public, but not 
wave the red flag too much so that everyone goes like, well, they always tell you to stay out of the backcountry, right? Like, you know, there's things happened. Everyone tried their own thing. And then, um, and what Ari did really was kind of, in a sense, like pull it together. They were really open about like, well, what do you say? What do you prioritize in your classes? How would you speak to some, to a, to a snowboarder as opposed to a skier, as opposed to a snowmobiler, as opposed to a snowshoer, right? What do you, how do you, how do we deal with the, end, the, the DOT guys? What do they need to do? No. Shouldn't they be wearing beacons, right? Like, so let's, let's, maybe that should be a separate course really. So we can do that in eight hours. And these guys get in their machines and trigger slides with their blowers, right? I mean, but at least, you know, how do we make it work so that it's integral and that someone can go and take a course in California to Colorado to Wyoming and have it be kind of a handshake, right? Not just, well, they do it differently over there. So Ari really was pretty instrumental in that and, 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 and drove people apart at, with certain topics, but it really, in the long run, I think everyone pretty much stepped up and realized, oh, you know what? We do need to go to instructor seminars. We do need, like, let's review just a de- like a debrief of any day in the backcountry. Let's debrief what happened, what worked, what didn't work this winter in our education process. Not everyone was doing that. And I think it's awesome that they did that. And some people didn't like that. And I get it. You've been around forever. What, who's going to like sign you off? Well, but you know what? We can always be able to, can we relate it in a better way so someone can understand it more easily? So maybe they can be safer or they can pass that information on. So that's what the avalanche education kind of institutions have really kind of evolved, grown, morphed into and I'm happy to see that. And it's always, we have to be patient with that process. I mean, people had some good ideas and we realized that doesn't really work. You know, you don't, we, um, do people, I mean, there was a discussion at one point, like, do we, does everyone need to know how to do an ECT or do they need to know when you report ECT results on this aspect at this elevation in this particular locale, can they relate to that or not? And the forecasting centers have been done a fabulous job in regards to that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some infotainment that goes on, right? You got to keep people glued to the to the broadcast of sorts, right? But um, I think it gets a little too technical in my book sometimes. I think people, you got to remember, these people don't ski that many days out of the winter, most people, mm-hmm. in the backcountry, you know? What's the advice you would give somebody that is going to ski five or six times even here in the Sierra Nevada, I mean, after they've taken an Avi one course. I mean, I, would, I, I might say hire a guide, honestly. You know, have someone the, show you around. The, uh, the, the speed at which people think that they can progress in the backcountry is pretty staggering to me these days. You know, like this is a, a lifelong learning event, traveling in a in the avalanche environment, you know, and and seasoned people get it wrong every year, every month, every week, you know, and uh, and so I think the progression at which recreational use is happening in in a winter backcountry environment to me is it's a little bit speedy, right? And and we live in such an age with kind of like instant gratification. You can order something, anything you want on the internet <laughs> here in two days. Or less, you know? Right. And so uh, what I would say to somebody who wants to ski five days a year and, and hasn't really done it before is, like, 
probably hire a guide or or seek out people that have been doing it a, a lot longer than you have. Yeah, I mean, we've <laughs> we've all skated with our friends and gone like, what the heck's going on here? Is there right. like, this is chaos. Scratching your head. People are all over. So, you know, and it's, but what you said about, you know, it takes time. And I, I don't want to just, I'm not trying to be like the grumpy old guy who goes, yeah, you know, it takes a whole lifetime to figure that snowpack out. But, I mean, you got to have experience. Like, I mean, you can live, watch the Avalanche forecast and plug in every morning and whatnot. And that's going to give you some continuum for sure. It's going to give you an idea of kind of what's happening in sequence of, of the season. But I mean, my recommendation is like, take it slow. Don't worry about going back to a place you've been before. You'll see something different. I guarantee it. Right. But you'll do it a little differently too. You might take a different line. You might climb that hill differently. You might go like, okay, if I had a brand new foot on this, how would I really feel about working this piece of terrain up or down? You know, what do I really say to my friends? I hate it when you're shouting over your shoulder directions. That doesn't work, right? So let's talk about it on top of the mountain and it slows everything down. Everyone gets anxious and they just want to go. And that's really hard to do with friends. And so it's easier to do that kind of in a more controlled environment where there is someone that's the senior kind of, you know, like a guide would be. And so I would, if I go to Europe or whatever, I'm going to go like, take me where you take your mother today to give her good skiing. You know, don't, don't scare me. Don't hurt me, but let's go skiing together. And I would go like, wow, what's that? How's that? Wow. Is that why we're here? You know, ask him why he's making those choices. You might drive him crazy, but. So, I mean, it, it, it seems to me that there's no shortage of information out there. In, in fact, we probably have more of an information overload these days, clouding, perhaps clouding some of our judgments in the mountains. Um, what do you think about that? And, and, and you know, if, if more information isn't making us safer, what, what will make us safer in the backcountry? More experience uh-huh. instead of information. And how do you gain experience? It's just by spending time out there. Right. And by just, I mean, I mean, I, I, I look, Brandon and Andy and these guys here, the for, local forecasters, I look at what they say and what they do. But then I also ask guys that are patrolling and skiing in the backcountry, like what they saw as well. I mean, you can't cover the whole range, right? But um, I just kind of... I lower the bar, right? I mean, don't take such a big bite out of it. I mean, it take it, it doesn't be comfortable too. You know, I mean, we used to go like, whatever you do, don't bring more than one piece of new equipment because it's going to freaking harass you, right? I mean, whatever it is. So like, I just, I do think it's a media, I call it the media gyre. It's just like we're buried in it, right? And, and uh, it can really, I mean, I see people all the time. I should never say this, but I see people all the time. I mean, they're leaving their car. It's 1030. You're late. You're like hours late right now. You just, those are, it was daylight three or four hours ago. And that's when you want to get in. So now you have time. If something happened to you, whatever happens, maybe it was good. You can take another lap and it's not going to be twilight, right? You just widen your margin. Whatever you do, like give yourself some room and, and uh, don't, be so focused on maybe the goal should be like, let's, let's feel like we really kind of like we rule this place that we're comfortable here. Right. Not strutting, you know, sneaking around maybe, you know, I mean, um, doing it, doing it with style, right? There it is. Yeah. With respect, with some humility, 
but the, you guys, hours in the backcountry will pay off. You know, and um, I mean, I'm never, I, there's not a, I could, you know, like we know what it's like not to go. So go. Don't wait for like, oh, I'm waiting for the good day. No, go. Go in the rain, go in the dark, go in the whatever, right? And you will see stuff you won't expect. And you'll learn from that. And you'll learn about yourself. And that'll make you a stronger person in the mountains and a better leader and a better companion. I mean, it's life sense, right? I mean, it sounds so basic, but I mean, I mean, people get hurt in the mountains, right? We know what the stats are. And most of those things are we trigger the avalanches that catch us, you know? So, I mean, to really round up a good posse takes a while. It takes some patience. Make sure you realize who you are, how you fit into that. You know, what, what are you bringing to the team? I'm bringing, I'm bringing caution. I'm going to second guess everybody. I, I don't mind that. I, I, I like somebody in the group who's thinking, what if? It's way better than thinking, what now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what now is kind of like, oh, hell, here we go. Right? So it is teamwork, man. And teams can be awesome in the mountains. But, but it takes a while to craft that, mm-hmm. to sculpt that those minds so that you do get more out of a team. Um, Sounds all, I'm from California, by the way. Um. (laughs) Speaking of being from California, how do you ski like a bird, Tom? Let go. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, what did I just tell somebody the other day? I go like, it really helps it when you breathe, <laughs> right? So to be relaxed and just like really like breathe and, and read the train in front of you, like way in front of you, right? Your eyes will tell your body what to do. You don't have to, you know, I don't jam around. I like, I mean, there's times for that, right? Restricted terrain, things like that. But I mean, beautiful open slopes or connecting terrain features together and stuff. Oh my God. I mean, that's what skis are, wings, you know? It's wonderful. So it's about relaxing and finding that slope, right? Shallow powder, that's what's happening. Deep powder, there's a lot more work involved. It's beautiful. It's fun. It's it's exhilarating. It's unique. But um, you get boot top, man, you can go anywhere. And you can rack it up. And you can ski like a bird. <laughs> so, Tom, after about 30 years of ski guiding in the Ruby Mountains, you started your rookie ski patrol year at Mount Rose, huh? I did about eight years ago. I worked there for six seasons. Yeah. Uh huh. And what what was that like? Just kind of stepping into a. I've heard from other people that that you fully embraced the role of a rookie ski patroller. <laughs> maybe, maybe at a bit older of an age than most rookie ski patrollers. Um, maybe just talk about that experience of of stepping into a different operational context and. It's, you know, it is, it's institutional, right? A, a, a mountain with chairlifts and lodges and patrol and instruction and food services and grooming and all that stuff. I mean, there's a lot, you know, lift supervisors and maintenance and um, there's a lot going on. And and I, and I have to tell you, I mean, it was way more complicated than going heli skiing any day. I mean, just even to understand the lay of the land and who's who and who talks to and what's the sequence of events here to open those slopes or to start that, you know? So I was pretty much behind the eight ball in regards to that. Those guys took really good care of me. They were awesome. And it made me realize how, um, 
how much goes into that job. I mean, not just, and I don't mean just the politics, because there's always that when you add that many people to to an operation. But, um, um, you know, just seeing, I mean, skiing, people love skiing. I mean, that's how I learned how to, how to ski too at a ski area. And, um, and Rose has a great history to it, you know, and Reno really is a ski town. And, and uh, I mean, you see people that are happy and they're, and they're, whatever age they are. You know, I remember one time we were doing a little, um, I, I made this might relate. I'm not sure. We were doing some inside training early in the season and the, and they had like the little teeny, like the bunny bunny hill. Or, I can't remember what it's even called right now, but there's like a little conveyor belt, right. For the kids. And there's truly like a couple snow guns and it's like deep frost. It's barely snow. And I walk up to the window and all I can, I'm just, you know, a couple floors above this little pit, patch of snow. And all I can hear is these kids laughing. And I go like, yeah, there it is, right? It may be institutional, but man, it's working. These kids are falling in love with it. And uh, it was a really, being that, having that much of a mountain range and snow and freedom to to be in the Rubies for that many years, it was kind of a nice, like an easing out of that. You know, we still, I mean, what's the favorite time of year? the first and the last run, really, because you have it all to yourself. I mean, you are on a mountain. You're either opening it or closing it, you know, looking around, you know, whether you have a stack of bamboo on your shoulder or not. It was, I really enjoyed that. And, uh, and, and I mean, you know, those, those people, that's not an easy job being a patroller. There's a lot to know about what's going on, not just medically, of course, and all that training, but knowing the lifts, knowing the runs, knowing how to like really talk people kind of to people and, uh, and, um, to find out what they need, you know, um, where they are to be an ambassador, really to be a diplomat, you know, and, um, to help people out and just make them relaxed. And, um, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed that, mm-hmm. you know, but I've really now I haven't really, I've skied, really a couple of days at ski areas since I quit, you know, I tour mo- almost every day in the winter. I mean, at least six days a week, you know, even if it's going out just for an hour and a half or something like that, I got, I got a couple of little patches of sneak little pieces of terrain that I go to and kind of away from the, you can't get away from the parking lots anymore, but you can kind of, you know, bushwhack through some thins them out. Right. <laughs> the crowds thin up out up there. Uh, if you go far enough, uphill enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tom, maybe recount a time when you, you got it wrong in the mountains in terms of, you know, forecasting for a given avalanche problem or managed terrain, not quite as you expected to. I think, let me ask you this. Have you skied east sites? Sure you have. Yep. So for the audience... A really consequential piece of terrain. It has these steep pitches and it rolls out onto a benches. And the benches aren't flat, but they're but they're traps. And there might be three or four of these benches in like sixteen, eighteen hundred feet. And at the bottom is basically an open tomb. And we felt really good about the snow. And I was leading in there. And Joe Devo was behind me, and I was leading me in my group, and it's really essential. What these benches do, too, is they hide your your skiers from you and from each other, so it's really hard to kind of keep an eyes-on thing going. And I skied over the first first or second roll, 
you know, I was, you know, to my um, island of safety, regrouped, and I and I just didn't have the right feeling. And here's the thing about intuition, right? When's the last time intuition said go for broke, right? Most of the time, it's a cautionary deal. And I just got this feeling. I didn't have like a chill up my spine or anything, but I just went like, Devo, Joe Devo. I go, Joe, here's what I need from you. I said, ski your people one at a time down to me. They can follow our tracks. You know, they can make new tracks, but stay on our line. And now out when I get all those people, you come down to me. We need to break this up. I need your eyes at the end of the group and my eyes at at the bottom of the hill. I guess I don't feel right about this. So it was something that could, when you asked me, like, when did it not go right? I mean, it was just something that I didn't feel like I, my original plan was I'm skiing from A to B, regrouping, A to B, regrouping. Now I'm out across the flats. I'm out from under it. And it just felt like I needed some reinforcement there. I don't know. I mean, nothing happened, but it was definitely, it's consequential terrain. Why not ski it like that? Why be, and I wasn't cavalier, but it would might've looked like that if we would have had an event or an incident. Um, that's just kind of like, it's hard to learn how to ski like that. And it's really, it's much easier when you have a helicopter and you have people flying up to the top of the hill behind you. When you're the last group on the mountain, think about it. How are you going to really deal with that? How do you self-protect? You know, where's that helicopter? Where's my group? Where's my where's my wingman, right? With, and so know where people are. Joe would always say that on the radio. Do you know where everyone is right now? Okay, Whitey's at the fuel truck. Hans is on top. Joe, you know, you need to have the big picture. It's sure going to come in handy if stuff goes wrong, right? For those people to know right where you are. So why not play it like that? Sneak around the mountains, regroup at spots, really know what you mean when I say, hey, across the flats. That doesn't mean we stop at the bottom of the flats. We get across, we get out from under stuff, right? And it's hard to set that communication up. You have to practice and it will feel really awkward and it will feel really jumbly and kind of stiff, but you will get better at it. Um. You know, and I've had different things too where I thought the snow would, not an avalanche situation, but totally misread like a wind and had just bulletproof snow. And then thought, oh, it'll warm up. Never warmed up. The wind just hit it all day and just you had to basically ski what you really didn't want to, you didn't want a problem there. You were going to go 2,000 feet into the freaking talus, you know. Why didn't we walk off the back? Hmm, might have been a better idea. We survived. You know, but think about what changes that are happening. Why did I just take off my hat or sweater? What really good happens after noon is one of my old sayings. Like things have been, things get hotter than you think. You know, the atmosphere, the angle of the sun, what angle that slope is. How are we low? Are we high? Did the wind stop? You know, just be alert. I mean, like, um, and it takes a while to be a really, really good observer. And you can't do it by yourself. So, like, group yourself up with people that have their antenna up, you know? Tom, anything that's got your gears going these days? Like, when you think about the snow and avalanche community, anything that you want to kind of air out there? To instructors, I would say, and I say this about myself, of course, to instructors, I would say, beware what you really think you're getting across. And really look at yourself. Actually, Ian McCammon said this uh, when he came out to the Rubies years ago. He said, 
every now and then you should wonder why you're doing this. Why do I want to be an avalanche instructor? You know, is it, our egos are at play all the time, you know, and let's make sure we really like rein ourselves in and deliver to those people really what they need, not just what might be entertaining to us to deliver. And that happens sometimes when you teach too many courses or when you really haven't, I mean, you got to study up like the night before. I mean, not just the night before, but like it's a, you have to prepare for a course and get yourself in a mindset and also relay to those people in the course. Like when that person, when you see that person glaze over, you got to go, okay, now Sally, what I just said, how would that relate to like where we were in the train yesterday? Like what would, or whatever it is, like you need to engage those people. They really, they need, it's okay for them to doubt themselves, but you need to let that happen. And the way you let that happen is by not answering their question. Let them try to answer it. So to be silent and not just tell them what you know, let them know, figure out what they don't know and what they don't know. I remember one time, I can't remember Laidle or something asked me something and I go like, I don't know. And he goes, that's a good answer, Tom. Now I know you don't know. So let's get together and figure it out, right? Or let's figure out what we can figure out about this. So don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Don't be afraid to say like, could you say that again? Like, let's repeat that, you know, explain that in another way. A good instructor is going to do that because all those people in the classroom are not learning at the same time, at the same level, with the same type of triggers that you're throwing out there, which is why you need a good team leader with you as well. Teach courses with at least a couple people that can really pick up the subject. I'm at a loss for words. Boom, you're right there, Caleb, right? We And we can make that both entertaining and we can make it engaging. Those people don't need to be lectured to. They need to be going, oh, I felt that before. I wonder if that was, you know, I mean, and also it's complicated. You go into a pit and you're like looking at snow for the first time through a loop. What did you say? Some great fuzzy stuff. I mean, it's really hard. So when you have a teaching moment, go ahead and derail the course to go like, look, that's surface horror. This grew on the side of the lodge last night or whatever on the picnic table, right? Or look, it's grappling. This is a weather event. Like, what'll, what's going to happen to this? Because it's a perfect opportunity. Now, tomorrow, you can, like, dig down. Just maybe it's only a handful down. But, like, you know, look, boop. We get a little mitt pit, right? Mm -hmm. So it's hard to do that. It's hard to be structured and at the same time use the triggers that nature's providing. But that's what people are going to engage with, really. You know, I mean, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, Tom, thanks a lot for sitting down with me tonight and um, appreciate your your uh, perspectives and your experience in the mountains and your experience within avalanche education and guiding. And, and uh, it's been great to catch up. It's really good to spend a little time with you. And you guys out there, have a great winter. See you. All right, cheers. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that one. Um, sure was great to catch up with Tom Carter there. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You demand T. Check out more of his work at MikeT.com. Music on today's episode was from Age Diamante. 
and used with permission from the artist. Check us out on social media. You can find us at The Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget to subscribe to, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you listen to it on. And don't forget to tell a friend. You can send any feedback you have for us to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to tune in on December 15th to our next episode. We'll be tuning in from Across the Pond with Matthias Valker. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.